Well, at this episode of Conversation, the Inclusion Europe Radio, we will talk about this book, which uh, name I will do my best to pronounce correctly. The Development, Conceptualization and Implementation of Quality in Disability Support Services. The book was published last year by Carolina Press. And, and the aim of the book, the authors say at least, is to bring together current research and experience related to the process of ensuring people with disabilities can realize their rights, in particular their right to live in the community and be included in the community. And there are two main elements to the book, the different ways countries go about supporting people with disabilities to be included in the community, and second, defining, measuring, and delivering high-quality community-based services. And I have today with me for our Inclusion Europe Radio, the two people who are responsible for this book, including for the fact that I am one of those contributing to it. And I will talk to them about the book, what they learned from working on it, and what we all can take as lessons from that to implementing deinstitutionalization and community-based support and services. So welcome, Julie Beadle-Brown and Jan Shishka. Thank can you. we start by introducing yourself? I'm Julie Beadle-Brown and I am a professor in, my official title is Professor in Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities at the Tizard Centre at the University of Kent in, in the UK. I have had a kind of a long experience and history of working in the field of deinstitutionalization and the development of community-based services over the last 20, 25 years. And consider that I, I learned some of, at least some of not all of what I know from one of the, the kind of the great mentors in the field, which was Professor Jim Mansell. And, and for me, the, one of the, the reasons why this book came about was was that we'd been trying for some time to write something that was not just in memory of Jim, but that actually was about taking the work that he did further to the next to the next level and trying to help other people to think more um, about what we need to do to develop kind of community-based services for all. And so this this book was a culmination of a number of projects that and then that Jan and I have worked together on over the last twelve years or so. I'm Jan Shishka, I'm an associate professor of uh, the Charles University, the Faculty of Education in Prague, Czech Republic, and also the West Bohemian University in Plzeň. Currently, I'm a Fulbright research scholar at the, the Minnesota University in the United States, and I have been working in the field of, of applied disability studies, particularly around intellectual disabilities for more than two decades, working closely also with Inclusion Europe and other international sort of disability organizations in research and also in the field of campaigning for rights of people with disabilities, not only in Europe, but also in, in Africa, for example. And maybe let's go back to what Julie was saying, and then let's just bring it back to Jim Mansell, who said he was, let's say, one of the inspiration for the book or, or the inspiration of kind of looking better at, at his work and how it developed since then. 
Can you maybe just talk a little bit about Jim and, and, and what, her, what his work and contribution to this field was and how it influenced the book? We, we tell this a little bit in one of in the chapter he, he, that we use an interview that was con conducted with Jim in the same chapter that obviously you've contributed to um, Milan, where we start that chapter looking at an interview that Jim did in 2011 as part of his retirement kind of conference that we held is what's called a festschrift <laughs> and he was interviewed about his history and his his and his dreams if you like for the future unfortunately he he passed away in 2012 so hasn't seen you know kind of where where we've got to and, and what has what what has changed but jim started his his influence in this this area as a as an 18 year old student at Cardiff University who was studying nothing to do with disability or policy or anything like that. He was actually a zoology student. And one day, the lab the lab technician from the from the zoology lab asked for a volunteer to take young people, children basically, from Ely Hospital in Cardiff to the cinema, all as a big group. You know, they were all going, but he needed somebody else to go with him. And Jim went with them. And the story is that within three weeks, as an 18 year old student, Jim had called a meeting with the local health authority, the, the council, the, the, the institution directors to discuss the closure of Ely Hospital. So that's a good story as it's recalled in, in the interview in the book as well. And I just keep wondering yeah. now it wouldn't be possible at all. You would have no. to have like well, seven. Yeah. Seven different themes and, and plans to all do no, all absolutely. this. <laughs> and of course, he was viewed as this this kind of who is this person, this, you know, young person who's who's, you know, sort of either brave or stupid enough to, <laughs> to, to, to do this. And I, he was asked in, in the interview, sort of what made you think you could do that? <laughs> and he said and he used, he used the phrase, well, I guess it was the arrogance of youth. You know, it's, it was the right thing to do. So I did it kind of thing. And you're right. I think it's nowadays we're, we're much less brave. And I think in terms of, of doing things like that. But he then started that first year, started a charity with six other students and they took five people. They literally just took five people out of the institution and they started to, to support them in the community. And they pushed boundaries to all over for years and years, taking the people that everybody said, no, they can't live in the community. So either in Cardiff or in, in the Wessex work with Albert Kuschlik, or again, and obviously when he started the Tizard Centre, it was always about taking the people that everybody said, no, they can't live in the community and showing that everybody can live in the community with the, with the right type of support. And I think and a lot of our research, the joint research that I'd done with with Jim was very much about that, you know, documenting and working out what is needed, how, how can we get more people how can we really kind of close the institutions and get good community-based services in the uk we have spent many years delivering not very good community-based services they're in the community but sometimes people's lives aren't necessarily you know better just moving people what we have learned yeah. for many years yeah. is just moving people into the community i.e into a house outside of an institution doesn't guarantee their better quality of life and i think that was so you know, a lot of the work that we've done has been focused on, you know, looking at where are people living. And, and we have no idea the data and the studies that we've done recently, the, the study for that we worked with, with you on Milan and inclusion and inclusion Europe, you know, it identified that we we haven't moved 
that far, particularly for in people with intellectual disabilities in some ways, in that lots of people are still in institutions. <laughs> and actually, even more, we know very little about what their lives are like in the community, because there's very little research about, well, what do people even have choice yeah. and determination yeah. and a good life in the community? And we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah. As you said, it was a good thing then to help people move out of those segregated places and to mm. help them live their lives in the community. And it is a good thing still, and it's very much needed. If we go back to the book now, Jan, and if you want people to go get and read the book, what would you tell them? Why should people read it and who should read it? As you said, the book was published by the sort of scientific or academic publishers. Our aim was to have the really broad readership, which would include policymakers, service providers, and also organizations such as Inclusion Europe, to understand the, what is actually meant by quality. We don't, we, we don't provide a clear answer. However, we do have in the books the, the, the a number of concepts of how the, the quality of services is uh, formulated in different contexts internationally in Norway, in the Czech Republic, also in Brazil, in the UK, and what, what has been working and what were the kind of challenges have been identified in, in different countries. So I think this is the, the something what might attract the potential readers to have kind of a broader view how to, to assess, how to let, look at quality and who who should do it, what kind of competencies maybe people should have in terms of access to quality. I think there are the, 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 the two kind of elements, strong elements to the book. The first one is about the institutionalization as the process of moving from the segregated institutions to community-based support and services. Mm -hmm. And the second is the quality of services, quality of lives that, that you keep referring to. And there are these two that are, of course, complementary and, and very strongly connected. If we and 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 the book also offers and you also mentioned different countries there and, and, and different continents, actually, and just countries in this context and different kind of authors and different perspectives. Do you think is that there is like a one common thread that you can see through the book? Like what would be it for you? Julie. I think there's there's actually <laughs> there's actually three and I'm laughing because when when Jim was alive he always he always found three points to make about everything you asked him a question <laughs> he always had three points to make and that's I was laughing because because uh, it was something we always remember about him whenever you make a point like three there are three and then you think ah Jim would have said that but there are three kind of key themes and I guess they relate to some extent to what we wanted to achieve what we wanted people to understand but they also, when I was thinking about it last night, I, I realized that, of course, they actually relate back to what we did, talked about in that 2007 Declock report all of those years ago, where we looked at what was called then, and it's an organizational change kind of literature, Glyker's formula, <laughs> to some extent. There's this idea that in order to move forward, we have to have a good idea of where we are now. 
we have to we have to know something about where we're starting from the bases so so in a, in a way the book was partly as you summarized at the beginning about really trying to say at least for some of these continents you know different continents so like oh what is the current situation for people in terms of community living and quality of services what do we know now and in a way I guess that's partly about and what, what's working and what's not working to some extent. And I guess that's partly creating that sense of dissatisfaction that we're not far enough yet. We still have work to do. It's not over, despite the fact that sometimes in the UK, you know, you would think there was an even though we still have our institutions in different different formats. You know, it's very hard to get people to think about some of these things because they think it's all done you know, kind of thing. So so there was one, that was one kind of theme, if you like, that was running running through, is that there's still work to do. We're not there yet. Lives, there's still lives to, to improve and people, you know, lots of people to get out of institutions. The second thing, and Jan alluded to this a minute ago, was about the, what do we mean by quality? So the, the fact that it has different meanings, different ways that it's conceptualized in different countries by different people, but what we wanted to do was try to create a um, core understanding, like a way of thinking about what people's lives should be like or could and should be like, I guess. But not just about how it can be conceptualized and measured, but some of the chapters were very much about how it can be operationalized, you know, in the sense of what would it look like? What would you see or what would good look like in terms of the way that support is provided, for example? That really key for us is this idea that it's for all. And all the way through, we wanted to emphasize that, that it, you know, we have to include people. Or we, it's important to think about those with the higher, the highest support needs, because they often are the people that don't see community-based services in most countries in that and then the third thing of course is well what do we need what what do we need to produce good outcomes and high quality services so those three things kind of filter through and if you like they were designed into it with the structure of the book to some extent but across the whole book that was what we were trying to I think achieve in terms of promoting that understanding and and each of those things I you know was thinking last night reflect all those things we said in 2007 in the Declock report about, you know, creating dissatisfaction, having a vision of where you want to be and having the first steps to start. Two important things that, that you are saying, and I think are worth discussing in, in further detail a little bit, or at least clarifying slightly. One one is the Declock report, and then, as you say, creating dissatisfaction, and maybe we can just in a minute get to that and then see mm -hmm. how that situation develops. And the other I just mentioned and in the second thread that you described was the situation of especially people with higher levels of support needs. I think especially for Inclusion Europe, representing people with intellectual disabilities, there are important messages in your book on this topic about how people with intellectual disabilities and specifically people with complex support needs are treated within uh, the institutionalization efforts and, and on the role of self-advocacy. So with this very obvious nudge, can you can you just talk a little bit about that? In some of the chapters, you, you could find some recommendations related to how to assess quality of services provided to people with the most complex needs. And we also had an international forum yesterday where we introduced some 
recommendations as a result of our study for the European Association for Service Providers published recently. And the, the one of the recommendation is to use, for example, observation. Obviously, people with complex um, complex needs very likely will not communicate verbally. So we suggest to have observation as a tool for assessing the, the quality. And despite the fact that it's, it's subjective, it takes time, it's very demanding for those who are responsible for the quality as assessment. And also that the paperwork is not enough or should not be should not be enough, which is often the case. And it's quite clear from our study for the ESPD that it's you know, that the systems very often focus on the paperwork, on the processes rather than on outcomes for different reasons. One reason might be that it because the, if it's uh, the system is embedded in the law, I, it's quite difficult for the systems or for the responsible agencies to make sure that this kind of systems or methods are applicable and and how do you say it maybe transparent enough so there are different issues but we we do stress that it's very important to find different ways different methods how to assess quality in terms of everyday life of people with the most mm -hmm complex needs. We don't have one single answer how to do it, but one of the potential answers could be creative, for example. So we think about the measurement and one of the other barriers to pe when people are looking at what how good services are is that they don't actually themselves know what good looks like. And so one of the things we had a chapter in the book by Jill Bradshaw, <laughs> where Jill described the, the kind of approaches that over the years have been developed, particularly with people with, with the more with higher support needs in mind, but actually that apply to everybody. And those those kind of approaches like active support, support for communication, so using alternative and, and augmentative communication methods, autism friendly approaches like the spell framework that help to, to make the environment easier and better, more predictable, etc. for people. So it's not so anxiety provoking, etc. That those things are are needed. Families are often asked to fill in measures about their son or their daughter or their their relative and, and measures of quality. You know, are they happy? Do they, you know, what do they get? Do they get that? And when we talk to families in the context of the other consultation of the other project, they really liked the framework we had developed because they they could see it helped them to know what good looked like. It helped them to go, oh, that's what he should be getting. <laughs> that's what it should be like. And then they were able to then comment better or have more objective indicators, if you like, of, of what things should be like. And so I think in the book, there's that, the, the two things that are related to this was was the, the, the overarching point, don't forget about people with more complex needs or more severe, you know, more higher support needs. So everything, you know, was like there was always a point about. And if you're supporting, you know, this group, you have to think about these things. But also that idea that it's it's about, you know, we do know from the last 40, 50 years of both implementation practice and research, we know how to deliver good community-based services. We know what works. So the question is, how do we get people to do it? And that's where that <laughs> third part of the book was really focused was, you know, we actually do know quite a lot about how to do this well. 
but why is it not happening? Why? What are the barriers? What are the what are the reasons? How do we understand? And then how do we change those things? And that takes us back to that dissatisfaction. Yeah, point exactly. Right. And then uh, we'll get to that. Why? It, why is it not happening as much as it should? That's an opportunity to go back to the Declock report that you mentioned. It was mm. 2007, basically a report describing the situation in the European Union about people being institutionalized and how many mm. and, and what kind of categories of people. And it was, a, let's mm -hmm. say, a, a, a very significant research and paper report in helping to establish the institutionalization as a very important part of EU policy framework and, and especially for, for children and, and people with disabilities. And there was a then obvious development in how this topic is, is treated within EU thinking, especially around the EU funds. There's been a lot of work being done around, but then in 2019, I think you were involved in drafting, let's say, a follow-up report to simplify mm -hmm. and looking at what the situation was at the time, so two years back, essentially. And surprisingly, I guess, because of all the efforts that went into it, I guess the main finding was that much didn't change, right? Am I correct <laughs> in recalling <Yes>. that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Were you, were you surprised by that or, or did you expect the result? I, I wouldn't say that only that the, 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 the progress has not been has been unsuccessful. I wouldn't I wouldn't say so. For example, in our own country, in the Czech Republic, it's it's clear that a lot of people have moved out of institutions, big institutions, and now they live lives as Anybody else? Of course, far more could have been done. No doubts about it. Particularly around, as we said, with people with the complex needs. Of course, there's going to be issue of aging of people with intellectual disabilities who have moved from out of institutions and who become to have a new sort of more intensive needs. We we might have expected results, but we should also be aware of the kind of a structural challenges the, the Europe has been facing over the two, two decades, not only COVID, but also the shortage of living opportunities, for example, is what we also report in the in the study. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to see the, the situation kind from of, kind of a broader perspective. And then what, what, do, you mean, what do you mean by a shortage of living opportunities? Well, for very high prices of uh, apartments, flats, no. you know, no. just simply accommodation where people could move, opportunities where people could live, you know, in ordinary flats, ordinary mm -hmm. apartments, but uh, it's not that easily available. And it's not only the case of the Czech Republic, it's also yeah, the case so. in, in elsewhere. And mm -hmm. same time, the families, the, the people with disabilities, sometimes they don't have information. They don't have maybe the capacity to be that strong in finding you know, the places, places to live. And the services which would provide this kind of support is not often available. Yeah, I think it's an important point about especially the housing situation, as you said, Jan, and, and the general availability of other public services and, and their accessibility and, and how 
people with disabilities can rely on them in their daily lives, which more often than not, they cannot. And the problem then being that basically the only answer that everybody is looking to is, is like, let's build social and yeah. the build is literal <clears throat> there. So we'll build a house and we'll put some staff yeah. in it and we'll put the people there. And that, that seems to be the universal answer to everything. But I think it's an important what, what you just said there. Mm -hmm. It's it's basically doing more of the same while the real need, uh, the real way forward is is adapting and then making progress in let's say the general services, including housing and, and other elements. I think there's a real risk that we've we've seen certainly in quite a few countries. And I was in a few services last week in the Czech Republic, where the buildings had been funded by the projects and or by the regions or whatever. And the buildings were so much better and nicer than any of the houses around. And, you know, we've certainly had situations, for example, in Croatia and in other places where it, it actually isolates people more when they live in this fancy building that has been used. Lots of money has gone into building, but it's different. It's of a higher level and quality than than the buildings that the general population around them live. So it almost, almost not quite to the same extent, but almost it kind of reverses the, so here they're in, they're segregated because they're in an institution and then they move out and here it's like, well, you know, how dare they? They don't work, they don't pay taxes. How come they've got a nicer house than we do? <laughs> With a big garden and all the rest of it. And so, you know, that that focus on, on the buildings sometimes has backfired <laughs> on, on people in terms of their actual community. And, and of course, I, I'm not particularly surprised, given the work that I do traveling around countries and things and seeing stuff, that it wasn't, it didn't come out as, oh, there's huge, you know, improvements and people living in the community. Of course, there was, there is some for particular groups. And other groups haven't changed that much, in particular people with intellectual disabilities. But one of the big barriers is that actually the data is so poor. The data we have is only about places in institutions, really, for the most part. We know very little about people who actually yeah. do live in the community, for example. Exactly. So, yeah. so it's, it's really hard to know for sure what the situation is sometimes because we don't have that data and and the work that we've been doing recently the e, the work with ESPD's project on quality frameworks one of certainly one of my dreams and one of our you know was was that if we could create a framework that at least had some core data that that could that people could collect in different countries even if it wasn't for everybody even if it was for a sample of people you would then start to see whether Article 19 or any other articles of the UN CRPD were actually being implemented in practice. Because we know about changes in policy, we know about people developing new policies and changing some systems. We know that there are more people receiving personal budgets, for example, or some form of self-directed support. But we also know that there's lots of places where actually that only applies to certain groups of people. And people with more more severe disabilities more complex needs more you know higher support needs that they don't even have the opportunity to access it and this isn't just the central the eastern european countries this is as big a problem in belgium there were more people in belgium and italy in institutions in 2019 than there had been in 2007. <laughs> so 
But the big, there is a big issue about the the data about how we know these things. I think is is a key is a key issue, and that what we need to do. And it is a new UN convention. Article thirty one says states have a responsibility to collect data that shows the progressive realization of the UNCRPD. It's like, well, we're not getting there very well, are we? yeah. um, and which means that we can't tell so well how well we're doing on the other things because we don't have that data. And and it is important. How can we how can we create dissatisfaction? So that we prompt people to say, oh, no, we're not doing that. We actually need to do better is a, is a big issue, I think, and without data. That I think is a um, big issue across the disability Absolutely. related yeah. policies. So basically, you attend any seminar or any conversation about disability and then sooner or later it will be about the lack of data. And if, if after all these years and all this advocacy, they cannot be bothered to collect and measure data, how can mm. we actually expect them to do progress in real quality of mm. life related issues for, for people? So I think that, that's always uh, a big indication of, of the real interest mm. of, of the countries and authorities involved. But just slightly going back to the to the book on, on, on the institutes, and then we, move, we will move on to the quality of life for the second part of the conversation. But as a last point on, on the process of the institutionalization and, and as Jan was saying, like obviously there was progress achieved and for thousands of people to a large extent, thanks to EU funding and then to the pressure connected to EU funding, their life conditions increased significantly, uncomparably, of course. But still, the overall numbers are pretty revealing. There is a, a lot and a lot of people and a lot, a lot of work that remains to be done. What would be your one advice to uh, relevant decision makers if you had the opportunity and you wanted to really make progress on this issue? One thing that, that you think should really be done and implemented? Stop planning and doing pilot projects <laughs> and just do it. And I think I, I, I have Jim in my head when we, you know, that idea, well, you know, just just start rather than try keep doing trials, actually, actually start and start include people with the most severe disabilities from the beginning, because if you can show that it works for those people. You can get it to work for everybody. I don't have anything much to add. Just do it now. Yeah. Stop, you know planning pilots just you know, do it do the real thing <laughs> and, and, yeah. and i think i think we already discussed on one thing though but don't focus on buildings obviously you need to have housing but focusing on the people and the support that's provided because the thing that we know from research across all of the last 40 years particularly in the field of intellectual developmental disability is that only two things matter when it comes to the quality of life of individuals one is the severity of their needs, the, the complexity, the severity, the extent of their needs. Those who have more severe disabilities generally have a poorer quality of life because they are reliant on the second factor, which is the quality of the support, the nature of the support that people get. And at the minute, we still have a system in almost every country we work in that focuses on caring for and doing to, not doing with enabling and empowering people, particularly people with 
the, the higher support need, have this disability equals charity kind of culture. And we see we have low expectations for people. We don't really see people with intellectual disabilities as equal members of our society. You know, but actually the only way to change that is for to get people out, start to show them as contributing members of the society, whether it's a job or whether it's helping the community on, on I don't know, tidy up towns day, you know, get get the city's beautiful day or whatever it is, whether it's picking up litter in the park or baking for the local church fair or whatever it might be, that the, if, if people are in their houses or in their institutions, you can't, you can't change those attitudes because you don't change attitudes by telling people. You change attitudes by showing what people can do. And at the minute, we've had all of this. We've had all of these discussions about measuring quality and what we need to do. But actually, the only thing that's going to change people's lives is shaping up those support skills of those who, whether they're providing personal assistance to one individual or whether they're providing people support in a small environment where the organisation has had to rent it. The people don't rent or own it. The organisation has to rent it or buy it sometimes in order for people to move out. And I think, and I'm not very popular for my view on this. Sometimes some people disagree with me. And of course the ultimate aim is for people to be living in their own home with support coming in. But if we wait until that's possible everywhere, nobody's ever going to get out, especially those people with more complex needs. We, we have to allow countries that opportunity to get people out, even if they have to live in small groups where you do everything possible to, to do to make sure people are compatible, that they choose where possible where they live or who they live with as much as we can. And then then move on. It's never a home for life. It's it necessarily it's like, OK, let's get people out. Let's show the community that these people can live here because all these years, one of the things I've learned, and I remember being very disappointed after Decklock because we thought Decklock would be. Do you remember we used the clock? We used the Prague mm. clock. To or Roy. Um, or Roy. Yeah, to symbolise. <laughs> we wanted the report to help with time travel. We wanted to boost people forward so that other countries didn't have to go through 30 years of poor community based services and people not still in institutions in the way that in England or in other countries we had. And I remember it, I was very, very naive and thinking, oh, yeah, we'll just tell people, we'll tell people what to do. And it doesn't work. It the other element that, that you both said was, uh, I like that you picked up on the piloting of things that's my favorite kind of a topic of especially in the sense that it seems to be that everybody every country is, is piloting whether people will like if they have better lives that's basically <laughs> what this is about right well we'll provide better conditions for people as a pilot to see if they like it <laughs> We've never met anybody well, yet who wanted to go back to the institution. <laughs> and the, the, of course, the saddest part of it that regardless that everybody likes it, there is not much follow up on the pilot. There's just more pilots of some other terribly yeah. innovative aspect of improving people's yeah. living conditions. And, and the data collected is not always of the right type of data 
to look at the real benefits and the impacts for individuals in many ways. You know, that idea of, well, what happens when the money ends? Where do people (laughs) go when there's no more money, when the pilot is finished? And the the other element of what what you were talking about is, is let's, it's basically is what we like to sum up into don't build houses, build relationships. Mm. Uh, that that is, I think, that's uh, the yeah. advice from our point of view. Yes, and and that's what you said about invest in the skills of those who provide support and focus mm. less on on the material houses. And but let's let's move on from this to the aspect of measuring quality of life. That's been always a topic that kind of. I had a reserve, and I think many others do. And, and I think Julie already said at the beginning why this is. There are so many different tools and, and ways of doing this, and there are so many different ways of, of how governments or, or, or authorities measure quality of services and quality of life of people. And we rarely see, I think, that it makes any kind of real difference. So. What is your take on this topic? What is quality of services and quality of life for you and, and how you think it could be improved? Well, Milani, you said that the kind of uh, the quality measurement, the quality assessment of the quality of social ser- of services, of measurement, whatever we, whatever we call it, does not have any impact. And so I'm not about, don't know about Julie, but I think we both disagree with you, right? <laughs> and there's one simple evidence for this statement that the question why so many countries are focusing on developing those frameworks, those tools, and not only the, the governments or policymakers, but also service providers themselves. They want to have kind of tools to make sure that what they do is, is right or with the, with the quality. But the, the question is, what is the quality then? And we, we believe that the, the main aim of those systems, frameworks, is to improve the quality of services, all right? Now, looking to, to our country, the, the, the Czech Republic, Milan, the, the, our quality assessment system was introduced more than a decade, uh, decades ago, and there is evidence that it has made a, a positive impact of people's lives. No, no doubt about it. However, this, the system has not changed. It's, it's very rigid. And there is the, the criticism, and why I'm, I'm one of those who criticize the system, that it's so rigid that it does not provide any, it doesn't have a potential to, to carry on with those improvements. People have, the, the organization, they have done the job, they comply with what is, what is expected, but that's, that's unfortunately is the end, it seems to be the end. As the, in the other countries in Europe, they, they do consider how to make, how to revise those systems and asking those legitimate questions. What, what needs to be changed or revised and why, and who should be involved. And it's obviously a highly political issue. Money involved, politicians, lots of people employed in the services. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I mean, I think that but you touched Milan on a really important point because you, you said something about the fact that whether they're looking at whether the what is the quality, whether they're looking at the right things. And Jan said the same the same thing. And, and of course, in, if we look at the UK as an example, the way that quality has been measured has changed quite substantially to use different methodologies to include things like observation. And Jim Mansell and then I fought very hard to keep them observing and doing things and to give them little tools that they could use to say, what would it look like if these, and they changed and, and systems whereby you know, they've tried and it's sometimes worked and sometimes not worked, but where they try to move from compliance to excellence, which, of course, was a bit what we've been focusing on in the in the work recently. Compliance might be that, you know, people's physical needs are met, they're safe, etc. What does excellence look like? Well, excellence means people have good qualities of life. What does that look like? If we think about what does quality, what does a quality service look like? And we start to define it and we think about it. And of course, I'm a very big fan, as you know, of quality of life as a framework, because everything I've done for the last 20 years has shown me that that framework is useful to help people to think differently, to, to help them to operationalize what it is they need to do for every individual they support with to improve their lives. They may not be focus, focusing on every domain at once, but they might be thinking about, ah, a personal development. How, you know, what do I, what could I do to help that person to develop, to learn new skills, to have new experiences, etc. So for me, the quality of life has eight domains. And I can describe those. I can tell you what you need, you know, how to help people to, you know, experience those. But then if I look at my pol at our policy, our Care Act, for example, from 2014 in the UK, it's really unhelpful because it has what are the aims of social care in the UK is to improve choice and control, to improve this, to improve that, to improve well-being, to improve quality of life. And I'm going, but they're all quality of life. And of course, what they mean there by quality of life is satisfaction or emotional emotional well-being. Yeah. And it's really one of the big issues is that there are so many different views. Some people see it just as a metric. It's only a measurement tool. They don't see it as a vision, as a sensitizing notion that helps us to think, what could we be doing to help people to experience these things? I think... You know, we, we had a meeting, when was it, 2011 in, in IACID, in Iceland. We started a process of trying to think about what is the role of ideology in intellectual and developmental disabilities? It was one of the things we were thinking about. Why has things stalled? Why have we not made more progress in terms of deinstitutionalization? And, you know, if we think back to those early, early days where we had normalization and whatever the critiques are now of normalization, social role valorization and the ordinary life, which was the UK kind of version and concept of it. Those were things that people could get behind and kind of think about in that way. Human rights just doesn't seem to be doing it <laughs> because I think I have a. I think it's something about the fact that we still see people with disabilities and particularly people with intellectual disabilities as special, <laughs> that we need something special for them, not the same things as everybody else, even though all the knowledge we have about providing good support and, imp and improving quality of life is that we need to do the same things that actually work for everybody. <laughs> 
We need to enable, empower, support, you know, change the environment, give people, you know, kind of easy to follow instructions, use visual methods, all the things that actually work for you and I. If we have to build a piece of IKEA furniture, just somebody telling us blah, 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 how to do it will not work. We'll never get that furniture up. And if our, if those who are responsible for looking at the quality of services actually knew what good, what looked, what it looked like, and how quality of life can be operationalized, and how you can make that happen by actually relatively simple. It's not about more staff. It's not. It's about how staff work and how they think and how they. The, you mentioned the word relationships, and Jim and I write about the enabling relationship, not just any relationship. It needs to be an enabling relationship if people are to have a good quality of life. And I just think there's something so powerful if we can get people to use it in the same way and think about the concept of quality of life where they're not thinking about 10 different things. And I think that was behind why we were so keen to have to work on the ESPD stuff was because it was an opportunity, I think, to really operationalize and to say, well, actually, if everybody could whatever you call it, whatever you name the domains, whatever you call it, if you have this concept of these elements, they can apply to everybody. They look different for different people, but the overall domains, what is important to you, Milan, might not be something that I find is particularly interesting in my life. What, what somebody else you know, likes, what somebody who's autistic thinks is social inclusion may not be what another person thinks is social inclusion. They are like the common domains that we all share exactly. as, as humans. That's I think I, I definitely agree on, on this. I think that's why I do kind of like the Scandinavian normalization topic mm. or as they can be ordinary life and whatever else, because it gives us a more practical, if you will, understanding of what to it do. is the rights approach and then the rights based thinking is not to be disregarded. It's the no, guiding principle. That's our guiding light. Mm. But we need something more practical in, in implementing services, supporting people, doing the deinstitutionalization mm. process, looking at things and how to actually improve people's lives. Mm. And if Absolutely. we are looking at it like this, then we need something that we call it quality of life, or it wasn't, as I said, normalizations or some other frameworks that basically talk about the things that we as humans have in common, some basic areas mm. that, that make us satisfy happy living kind of the ordinary lives included in, in the community. Yeah. And, and the CRPD or other human rights frameworks is that we have as the guiding light for assessing whether what we do in those domains is the right thing to do absolutely from absolutely. the human rights from human rights and we can map we can map can't we all of the articles of the uncrpd we've mapped in the recent report onto the quality of life domains yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. they, they it's it's there it works together but you're right those human rights stuff is like there's a baseline isn't there and it's like we've got those basic things that we need to make sure we have and then we've got the enhanced stuff which takes us to that higher level of quality of life and that will, of course, be culturally different, different in different countries. The state of the nation will impact on that. because So you're always thinking about, well, what is life like for other people who live there? Which brings us back to that housing issue. If you build beautiful houses that nobody else can afford for people with disabilities, you're immediately ostracizing them in terms of their so social inclusion. I think there's also like a 
actual framework problem with trying to and many people use the like implementing rights i i don't think that's possible rights are there it's like yeah. they are there they are described as you have a right guiding yeah. Yeah. you have the rights yes they are often taken away by the actions of the state or others yeah. and, and, and things like that but they are they they cannot be implemented right they, uh, yeah absolutely so, that's a very so, good point actually so realize, i think that you can realize uh, them but not implement them in the so sense of, i think yeah. that's in this sense as well may it is much more useful for people to have something i would call it more practical domains of of, of lives that they can use well thank you very much i i think we've uh, come to an end of this conversation i said this was based on this book, which name I will not try to pronounce again. You can do it for me, Julie. <laughs> so uh, the development, <laughs> conceptualization and implementation of quality. <laughs> we will uh, make the, the title of the next book shorter. I think that's a good point. Uh, something shorter for... words and shorter title. In <laughs> but uh, it doesn't have the word deinstitutionalization in it, though, which is one of the words that nobody except English people can can say, which is why they always shorten it to DI. <laughs> well, I was the only Czech person who could pronounce it, so that's why I got to manage yeah. the project in Czechia. You know, it's, it's the selection process. Uh, anyway, thank you very much, Julian. Jan. I hope you, you enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did. It was a lot Absolutely. of interesting yes. involved. And to everybody who's listening to Inclusion Europe Radio, of course, you can find other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the other stuff where you listen. So subscribe, listen to more. Take note of the fact that this work is being done thanks to support we get from the European Union. And if you have any feedback and questions about today's conversation, about any further conversations that we will have, please get in touch. You can contact us on social media or send us an email like in the olden days. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Milan. Bye. 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 Bye.